Eric, I want to really thank you for taking the time to come here this morning to be a part of this podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. I've been knowing you for how long now? Uh, so you started teaching Marissa. Marissa yeah. when she was, I think, three years old. So that would be nine years. No, ten years. Ten years. We've known each other for ten years. It's been a long time. All those talks outside the gym. Oh, you know, and I mean, always good talks. Always good talks. Because yeah. you're in tech, and that's something I like. Yeah, You're always doing something different and going over different places in Asia, trying to get stuff started. I love yeah. that. Well, you know what I mean? Ten years, a lot's changed in ten years. Hasn't it? Yeah. It really has. Tell me, where were you born? Uh, I was born in San Francisco. Okay. Uh, you say when or what? Or where? Where? Where, yeah. So San Francisco uh, Children's Hospital, uh, you know, grew up, born and raised San Francisco Bay Area. Okay. Do you have siblings? My sister is still there. She lives with her husband and three children up in Santa Rosa, which is just north of right. San Francisco. How many years difference between you? Two and years. Two years. Are you guys close? Very close. What, how about your parents? How are they doing? So both my parents passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, uh, back yeah, about ten years ago now. Okay. And they both passed away within about a year of each other. And they stayed married the whole time. No, they were. I'm a child of a divorced family, and most uh, people in California. I shouldn't say that, but a lot of a lot of people in California, California come yeah, from come divorced from, families. I do too. Yeah. Uh, you know, my father remarried, and my stepmom is still alive. And she lives close to where my sister is. Did you know her well? Oh, I, I mean, she raised me. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, so what, what happened when you? How old were you when, when your mom and dad? When divorced? I was uh, in elementary school, my parents split up, and then um, I decided, for a variety of reasons, that I wanted to go live with my dad rather than my mom. And my dad had been dating a uh, very nice woman, and uh, she graciously said, yeah, let's, let, let's have Eric and my sister Jen come and live with us. Well, he took both of his kids. Yeah. And so we went and lived with my dad and my stepmom, and she raised us from the time I was probably 10 years old. Until, uh, you know, I mean, well, until today, because she's still giving me advice. Is that right? So what about, what about your mom? What happened with her? Um, I mean, it's a sensitive subject. Okay, but, well, uh, we don't have to go there. My, uh, you know, my, uh, you know it's, it's, it's not something that I hide, but my mom had a drinking problem. Okay. And it was one of the reasons that my parents split up. Okay. Uh, and my mom uh, stayed single uh, after the breakup. And, uh, you know, she uh, was a real estate agent her, her entire career. But she, you know, it, she had an issue that uh, mm. she wasn't willing to address, and uh, it affected her health. But you said they died within a months of each, a year of each other. Yeah. Well, they stayed close. They were friends. No, no, no. It just happened that uh, my father had a medical condition mm -hmm. that had been undiagnosed for a while, and because of that, he died much earlier than expected. Mm -hmm. Uh, my mom, as I said, she had not taken good care of her health. And the doctors had basically told her, you know, hey, Mrs. Hamilton, if you will just take a walk every day, you could probably live another 20, 30 years. She wouldn't. 
And it was, for whatever reason, it was just too hard for her. She decided that that was not something she was willing to do. Mm-hmm. And it definitely affected her, uh, you know, her lifespan. Mm-hmm. Of course, my sister and I looked at it and were like, you know, okay, we're not going down that path. Did you, did, were you close with your mom at all? Um, it was a, it was a challenging relationship, but, you know, of course I loved her dearly. She was my mom, despite all of her flaws. But when, when you have somebody who is not willing to acknowledge a, you know, a, a challenge in their life, you have to put up, uh, you know, certain limitations. And so that, that was always a challenge for me because, you know, she was my mom, but I wasn't really able to, uh, to fully embrace that just because of those, uh, those challenges on her side. Mm-hmm. So your stepmom was really a good yeah. mother for you. Yeah. She didn't have kids of her own? No, did not have any children. She had been a single woman, never married when she met my dad, and said, yeah, I'll take on two bratty kids. In don't belong to me biologically. Yeah. Just, yeah, and I'll just do that. That is beautiful. And well, cheers out to her. I mean, that's beautiful. I hope she sees this. Make sure she does. Yeah, well, you know, that's wonderful. As, as in all parent and children relationships, you know, you have conflict, you have disagreement, you have all of that, but... Uh, you know, she she is one of the foundational reasons for who I am today, mm. and you know, I tell her that anytime that I can. Is your sister just as close to her? Um, she's pretty close, I and mean, like I said, they live near each other. Okay. Um, I think their relationship is more of small doses, especially <laughs> as my sister got older and more independent. Mm-hmm. And uh, our stepmom, uh, you know, was uh, very direct and, and open with advice, and I think sometimes my sister. <laughs> Uh, chafed at that, you know, didn't, didn't really want to hear, well, you know, you really should be doing this. You know? <laughs> so, um, you know, they keep in touch on a regular basis, but I think uh, small doses is probably the best way to put it. Does your sister have children? Yeah, she has three. They're, they're older, though. Yeah, so the youngest one... Are they one, Marissa's age? Uh, the youngest one is uh, 10 days older than Marissa. Okay. Which just happened by coincidence that okay. we had Marissa right at the same time as they had uh, Max. And then two older girls, one who is, I think, I think Ellie is 20, 19 or 20 right now. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Violet is uh, last year of high school. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, about it goes. 17, I think she's 17. about seven days. It's just, I think it goes so fast. I remember them when they were just babies, huh? Literally. I mean, I remember yeah, right. holding them in yeah, one right. arm. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. So do you get to see your sister often? Yeah, you know. Well, with COVID, with, 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 with COVID, it's been a real challenge. But previously, I would bring Marissa for a week to two weeks to California. We'd stay with my sister every year. Mm-hmm. That was really, really special time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, when you live overseas for you know as long as I have, as long as you have, seeing family back, you know, from your home country, wherever that may be, uh, is important. Mm-hmm. And FaceTime is good, but it's not everything. That's right. How long have you lived in Japan? So off and on. Was it all, only Japan? <laughs> so no, uh, I've lived in Japan off and off uh, since right after college. Okay. Uh, so I lived here, uh, moved here almost a couple months after I graduated from university. Mm-hmm. Lived here for several years. Went back to the states, then came out with Apple on an expat assignment. Was here with Apple for about five years. Um, started my own company. What year was it? What year was it? What year did you come out here first? It was first, I came in nineteen ninety three. Nineteen ninety three. Yeah, and that's straight out of college. Straight out of college, you know, um, it's a really good question, Um, and I don't have a logical answer, but Mm -hmm. I knew when I started studying Japanese in university 
that I couldn't just skim the surface on this. I had to dive deep. I had to learn about this culture. And, and it wasn't just Japanese culture. It was more, I'd always had a general curiosity about Asia. And the way I describe it to people in a real simple way is, I grew up in a state in the United States that has an incredibly diverse and widespread society, but it is very shallow. You know, California itself has less than 150 years of history, and even if you go back to the Native Americans, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You just don't have that depth. Mm -hmm. And I come to Japan, and I have friends whose families go back a thousand years, mm -hmm. and they actually have the documents to prove it. Right. And you're like, that's amazing. And what is that? What's the difference? And what does that mean from a society perspective? And I was just very curious. And you could see it when I was studying Japanese. I could see it in the language. I could see it in the writing. I could see it in, you know, and then of course, you look at kanji and you're like, well, that's not even Japanese. That goes all the way back to China and, you know, right, four or five thousand years. They chopped it all up, made it into blocks. And that was fascinating to me, and I wanted to learn more. What made you decide to study Japanese? First, and what college did you yeah. go to? What college? I went to UC Davis. UC Davis, okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what, what made you decide to study Japanese? You said you, do, you don't know why you came to Japan, but what made you decide to study Japanese? So, again, a fortunate <laughs> coincidence. I was an English major. I was planning on getting my degree in English and then probably going off and either a law degree or you know, some oh, master or something like that. Oh, really? yeah, that's what I was thinking about doing. How many years did you stay in college? Uh, I was there four, four just years. Four okay. years. And what would you, you graduate with? Uh, a Jap degree in Japanese. What? So... Started off in English, um, had a, a general tech background, so you know I, I dabbled with maybe going into a computer science or a, you know a hard science uh, degree, but realized that I'm just not cut out for 12 hours of debugging code in a basement. That's just not me. Uh, still love tech, and of course I've been in tech my entire life, but had to take a language requirement for my English degree. Okay. And I had studied Spanish for six years, and I was so tired of it that I would do anything. <laughs> to get something else in there. And I was looking through the course catalog, and I saw Japanese, and I thought, this is really interesting. I'd love to try this. Japanese? It was the hardest class I had ever been in. I, oh, you I, did I really well in school. I struggled. But you did well in school, basically. I, I did well in school, but Japanese yeah. was so hard because it was so fundamentally the way you think. Mm -hmm. It's right. different. It's different, right. right? And I talked to my teacher about it about three, two thirds of the way through the class, and I had a one on one. I'm like, I don't know if I can do this, you know. And that's, a, you know, when you've done well in school your entire career, that's a hard thing to admit. But she just said, you know, look, you're taking three English related classes and one Japanese class right now. Um, languages take focus. Why don't you just see if you really, if Japanese is cut out for you, why don't you try and take mainly Japanese courses, next quarter, and see how well you do. So I did that. I took a culture class, a history class, and a Japanese language class, and I did great. And you, know, you kind of got off, over that hurdle of, you know, there's the hiragana, the katakana, mm -hmm. and you start getting into kanji, mm -hmm. and things start, connections start being made in your right. brain, and you're like, wait a minute, okay, so this is why you say it this way, and oh, right. the verb always goes at the end, and, and oh, and so this is what a particle means, and when you start understanding it, then it, it it's scratching the surface and then realizing this is a Chinese character that means um, mountain, mm -hmm. but there's a history behind that that goes back how many hundreds of thousands of years. I've never experienced that before. 
This is this is something that I could study for the rest of my life. I'd never get bored. You'd never get bored. You'd always have something to look yeah. at. And I've always been the type of person that I would rather have a complex, challenging problem than something easy that I can just yeah. kind of check the box. Right. But as long as you can solve that problem. Well, it has all been solved already. It's just a matter of yeah. learning it. Yeah, yeah. And, right. and, and, and there was a, a point of creating your own connections within that and how that associates with your life and the things that you care but about. But don't they say that usually you have to identify with a society or a group to learn their language well? Now, you've got yeah. bluish-gray eyes. So, yeah. Am I right? Yep. Bluish-gray okay. eyes, yeah. Blonde hair. Yeah. <laughs> how in the world do you relate? <laughs> Excuse me. How do you know whether you relate to being Japanese? I don't. It's but not how, about how that. You, okay, it's, now how, what is it about? Just that challenge. And I think everyone who's non-Japanese or non-Asian comes, even actually non-Japanese, that comes to Japan and stays here for a long time eventually realizes, and a, a good friend of mine's father who'd been here for over 50 years when I first got here related this to me within the first couple of weeks that I arrived. He had been here since World War II mm -hmm. and uh, you know, ran his own business, was a very successful businessman in Yokohama. And he said, you know, I've been here almost my entire life, and I got into the taxi this morning, and the taxi driver complimented me on my Japanese, and I got upset because I told him, young man, no, I've been in this country, I've been speaking Japanese longer than you've been alive. And he said, but I know that there is an invisible, not wall, but there is an invisible separation, Japanese and non-Japanese, oh, right. in yeah. this country. And it's, you know, we come from the United States where those kinds of divisions have led to bloody riots and police discrimination and kill. I mean, it's, it's been very real in our face for the entire history of our country. That's right. That's right. Not so much in Japan. Not so much in Japan. Um, we can look historically at comfort women and things that happened in World War II. We can look at general discrimination that has happened here. But... We don't hear about a person being pulled over and beaten on the side of the street. No, no, no. Right? Not anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, well, actually, that's true. I mean, but see, but see, the thing is, don't, don't forget, Japan's history is really long, through over 3,000 years, yeah. right? They had over 200 years of isolation. Yeah. Basically, it wasn't total isolation because they had people coming up from Norway and stuff but, coming in. But it was controlled contact. Of course. Yes, and controlled messaging. They but all the people in Japan, of all the Asian groups, I would say, yeah. they look the most diverse. Hmm. But yet, they've convinced everyone that they're the same. It's amazing. Same. Right? Isn't that something what I'm saying? And, <laughs> and, and when you study this, you understand that it is a deliberate cultural decision mm -hmm. that started from the village, mm -hmm. built out in larger societies, and has successfully encompassed the entire country of a sense of myself is less important than my group. Right. Right. And my group is defined not by a single group, but it's defined by my circumstance. Now, if you'd watched the podcast I have, and I suggest people do, there's a person I um, had on. His name is Gregory Clark. Okay. And he's been here for a long time. He's mm -hmm. an Australian. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book because people ask, what is Japan? What is it? And he calls it a tribe. Yeah. It's very true. still in a tribe. Right. You don't do things wrong to you if you belong to tribe. And he wrote this book, and it is so on point. 
There, so when I was trying to, when I moved back to the States for the first time after I'd been here for a while, I was trying to explain to people the difference between the United States and Japan. I used a metaphor of um, the United States is a country designed with laws that come from heaven. They come from the government. They come from on high. Mm -hmm. And the rules come down very clear and they're, they're rigid. They're, they're a law. And you can be able to look at that point that comes down and be able to measure that as where you are and what you can do. Japan is a society that is accreted from the base where historically there have been unspoken rules. There have been customs. And that is the essence of how a tribe functions. A tribe does not function based upon you know, the elected officials that say that we're going to make this rule and, and, and you know, there's uh, you know, different factions and you know, you, you've got a tribe designs around survival. And what was practical, what works and, for the tribe. And, and the survival can be social as much as it can be uh, like physical. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you can look at you know, the, the concept of memes. Uh, in Japan's meme is very much you're part of a group. And if you're part of a group, you're safe. And if you're part of a group, you're supported. And if you're out of your group, well, we don't know what's going to happen to you. <laughs> because no one's outside of a group. Well, the people who are outside of a group are really outsiders. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, when you're studying Japanese culture, uh, one of the standard tropes that you are taught is that Japan is designed in three circles. You have your inner circle, you have your outer circle, and you have other. So when you speak in Japanese, if I'm inside my family and I'm talking to my dad, well, my dad is inside my circle, but he is a senior to me, so I call him Otosa. Mm -hmm. But if I'm talking to somebody in my outer circle about my dad in my inner circle, I call him Chichi, or I call him something that is not honorific. And it's a big question of what layer are you talking to, right? If I'm talking to somebody who's an other, say I'm in a business environment, well, I have to speak to them in very polite terms. And then I have to understand, at what level are they? Are they my customer, which means they're higher than me? Are they a vendor, which means they're you know, maybe equal or lower? I mean, there, there is a, a very structured sense of communication in Japanese. And it comes back to that sense of, what group are you part of? What, you know, and when you talk about tribes, you have a nation of tribes. I have a tribe inside of that tribe. I have a clan inside of that, um, that tribe, and I have a family inside of that clan. So my clan may talk to another clan, and they are another. But when I'm talking to another tribe inside of the nation, we're a whole tribe. And I speak to them, and I work with them, and I don't steal from them, and I, you know, I support right. them in that way. That's interesting. And it's, to my knowledge, it's one of the most unique social experiments, you know, the experiments been running for thousands of years, mm -hmm. that I've seen. You know, I've done business in India, I've done business in China, I've done business in you know, Europe. I haven't done any business in Africa, but uh, the one thing I see here is that insular nature of being Japanese is, it is a comfort for Japanese people, mm -hmm. you know, in, in a good way. This is not a criticism. Yeah, this, is, you know, this is a strength of Japan. You know, they always talk about, uh, you know, uh, back in the 1980s with Japan Inc., that Japan had this ability to build these five-year plans mm -hmm. and they would line everybody up and they say this is the direction we're going in and then they just steamroll forward right and that was part of the tribe because the tribe would get together and say 
our goal as a tribe is to go this direction. Mm -hmm. And they would spend literally years building consensus to make sure that everybody's needs were met and that everybody would go in the same direction and then they would say, okay, go, and everybody would go that way. That's pretty much why they got involved in World War II. Yeah. And same, that, the same thing. But also, and yeah. also very much the reason why they closed down for over 200 years. Yeah. The tribe said, we have to take care of our dirty laundry inside here and make sure because all of us aren't clear about what this tribe is all about. It's an interesting way to put it. I mean, historians yeah. will talk about the fact that um, Ieyasu, who was the uh, shogun at the time, mm -hmm. you know, he had just gone through a bloody conflict uh, and had finally been able to consolidate the country. And his goal basically was he didn't want any foreigners coming in and messing with him trying to organize. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, but it's, it's a different way to look at it, right? It's, right, it's, it's the tribe's basically saying, okay, you know, we, we want to work on the tribe. Right. We're just going to keep everybody else out while we work on our internal exactly. stuff. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly what they did. But they had to still get some information. And that's why they allowed a few people to come through from, North, you know, from yep. Northern Europe to come down and give them stuff. But no religion, nothing like that. Well, yeah, just give us, it was, it was, you know. In a sense, it was kind of similar to what the Chinese tried to do. Uh, as as they were, you know, trying to open up uh, special economic zones in the last, you know, several decades, they're like, "Come in and do business with us. Yeah. We love that. Just don't talk to us about politics, religion, or anything that's controversial, because that's right. then we will kick you out. Right. And make sure that we're a part of whatever you decide to do. Yeah. You and cannot do this on your own. You're not autonomous yeah. from us. Yeah. And it's. Yeah. I think the toughest thing is that European Western nations, for hundreds of years, have been able to really just stride the world and do whatever they want, and no one really was able to say no to them. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of countries that did. Thailand did it, Japan did it, and China is doing it right now. Right. right, you know? right. And, and China, of course, being a much bigger, not, right. you can call that's right, competitor in the sense that they now have the economic power right. where they really are independent and autonomous mm -hmm. from the needs of having the West, you know, take care of them or, mm -hmm. or, or you know, guide them or whatever. I mean, it's it's a very unique place that we're in right now. That's true. Um, and, uh, you know, Japan is kind of sitting in a very unique position but within I would, that. Yeah, I, I thought that when I was part of the chamber. Let's get back to you. Okay. When you finished, what made you come over here for business? How did you end up getting over here for business? Well, so, you know, I did what everybody does when they come over right out of college. I came over and I taught English. Right, and I did that for a couple of years. What year was this that you came? Ninety three to ninety seven. Okay. Yeah. And but why did you do that when you had this Japanese background? You could speak Japanese by that time, right? I graduated with a degree in Japanese, and my Japanese was atrocious. Okay, because you really didn't have anyone to speak with. You yeah, didn't. I mean, you didn't get I involved had, with the community there. I, well, I mean, at UC Davis, it's a farm community. I have more so, chance to meet with cows than I do you, Japanese you, you, people. Right. But your, your, your teacher was Japanese. All my teachers were Japanese, Japanese or right. fluent Japanese speakers. Mm -hmm. And I had all the fundamentals. Right, but you did not have But it contact. took me about six months of being in Japan and being immersed in Japan, in Japanese language. You stayed away from foreigners? Um, I, um, yeah, well, I mean, so I was... Uh, teaching English at an English school. So there were foreigners who were yeah. there. But I was very fortunate. The school that I ended up uh, joining, mm -hmm. uh, they actively encouraged me to improve my Japanese because they had classes from elementary school kids to senior citizen, citizens. Mm -hmm. And they would teach the elementary school kids grammar in Japanese about English. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, this is before they ever took it in school. And it was a very unique school, small school run by a couple. The wife was an American who had a master's degree in speech pathology. This is in Tokyo? This is in Yokohama. In Yokohama. Yeah. Um, a school named Joyce and Wat Eikaiwa. And to this day, they, I, I, I see that they have probably one of the more unique models in that they, they still exist. I'm pretty sure that, you know, I mean, they, they've been around for, they were around for quite a while then. Um, you know, I, I know that, uh, you know, both of them, you know, are getting older. I don't know if they've thought about retirement yet, but I looked at their website the other day and it's still up there and they're still running, so it looks like it. Um, I, haven't, I haven't been in touch with them uh, in recent years. I should get back in touch with them, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, but the point I was making was that I was very fortunate that they encouraged me in my Japanese. So within about six months after kind of being in that community and really having Japanese be the core language that I was hearing all the time, my ears started getting accustomed and I started really connecting all the dots of all the things that I had learned, the vocabulary and the grammar and everything that I had been learning for so many years. And it really was in the months after that that my speaking just really took off. And after about a year, I met on coincidence on a train with one of my former um, uh, classmates. And I was with one of my Japanese friends and we were conversing in Japanese. And he got, he's like, is that you, Eric? I says, how'd your Japanese get so good? And I hadn't, you hadn't thought about it yet. at all. You, you, know, you were in it. You were you too know, immersed in I was it. so immersed in it. Right. And, but it was at that point that I realized, yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> well, it was that, but it was, it was like, okay, I've started. You know, because my goal had been to get and, and dig deeper into what Japanese was and what the culture was and what the language was. And it was, it's impossible to do that if you're doing it in English and That's trying right. to do it in That's Japan. Right. Okay. And so after that, then it was when I could, you know, really start to get to know people in, in, in my community and be able to go to different historical locations. I, I, I live 15 minutes from Kamakura. Okay. And so I could go down to Kamakura and I could go and see you know, uh, different temples, and I could go and be able to learn about, you know, different histories around that, mm. understand what Kamakura meant to Japan, really still from an outsider's perspective, but it was, it was so much fun. Do you have any intention of ever going back to the States? Not right now. There's a time me, in the future possible. I've been here, uh, except for the seven years that I was back in the States between uh, my first trip and when I came out with Apple, I've been in Asia my you know, uh, the Don't entire time. Don't so more than half of my life okay. I've been in Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, I spent three years in Hong Kong uh, from 2013 to 2016 running Doing my company there. What company was that? So after I left Apple, mm -hmm. I started a company that was... Uh, but I knew you get... Hey, wait, you, you, wait, you just finished English class, then you said after you finished Apple, what happened after the English classes? So I taught English mm -hmm. for about three, four years. Mm -hmm. Woke up one day and said, you know, I'm not an English teacher. That's not what I want to do in my life. I came here to learn Japanese and culture, and I've gotten to a point where I think I'm, I'm going to hit a plateau. And that day I went into the school and I said, I'm going to be going back to the U.S. in six months. I wanted to give them time to be able to find a new teacher and all of that, and, you know, close up my stuff. And so I did that. Uh, moved back to the States and ended up uh, working uh, for a Japanese tech company. And they hired me because I had a long-standing relationship and love of Apple, and Apple was the client that they were working with. Okay. Uh, helped them launch a bunch of product and get the, you know, the, the business relationship with Apple doing really well. And then Apple called me and says, hey, we really like you. You want to come over and work for us? And so I went to work for Apple. How long had that uh, been? Did you? About a year and a half. A year. And then Apple picked you up. Yeah. 
And you stayed with Apple for how long? I was with Apple for nine years. So right after they picked you up, how long did it take before they sent you to? Four years. So I was, in, I, was, I was in the U.S. Uh, at headquarters in Cupertino, uh, Infinite Loop, the, the main building, for about four years, working in marketing and uh, market development okay. uh, on the product side. And then um, there was an opportunity in Japan. They were looking for somebody to uh, help develop a, a, a new piece of business. And they were struggling with that. One of my friends said, hey, Eric, you used to live in Japan. You speak Japanese pretty well. Uh, do you think you'd be interested? So I went and talked to the team. It was a very interesting opportunity. And uh, you know, we talked a little bit about what we could do there. And they ended up sending me out uh, for what was supposed to be a two-year assignment. Five years later, I'm running all of Asia Pacific instead of just Japan. And I've gone from this one specific product to basically uh, being the uh, regional product manager for all of the collapse. But you were in, in Japan then? Uh, in Asia. Yeah. I was based in Japan, but I traveled all over. I worked in oh, India and Australia. Hong Kong. Didn't you say something about Hong Kong? You went I got ahead of myself there. You should have done it. So, okay. <laughs> the, 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 the simple order to look at is right. I came, up with, came here with Apple. Right. 2009, Apple asked me to move back to the States. And with that move, I was going to be, they, they were, uh, there was an organizational change. Okay. And so my position that I was going to have was going to change significantly. Lower or higher? Uh, it, it really wasn't a lower or higher question. It was a Just lateral a move. Lateral and it was, okay. you know, I was moving into a group where I had great opportunities for, for uh, progress. Okay. But my Japanese skills, my Asia connections, all of that would become basically uh, not, not completely unimportant, but significantly less important. Mm -hmm. And I had spent five years building a great network and knowing a lot about how to do business and how to uh, build product and deliver product into the Asia market. And so I was looking around to see if there was any other opportunities to stay in Asia. And a uh, partner company that I had worked with when I was at Apple uh, approached me and said, hey, look, would you be willing to represent our company throughout Asia Pacific? And I said, yeah, so what, you want to hire me? And they said, no. We're a very uh, technology-focused company in California. We don't really know how to like manage and run a multinational business. Set up a company. We'll contract your company. And that's how we'll keep the relationship. So I did that. And that worked for how long? Nine years. Nine years. That must have been wonderful. So, uh, you know, that was, uh, sorry, no, not sorry, seven years. Seven, seven years. years. Okay. Um, and, you know, I ended up, I, I created a company called Pacific Portals, mm -hmm. uh, which was management and consulting, go-to-market, and, and uh, product advisement for uh, tech companies trying to be working in Asia. So you didn't deal with that company, you, started, you picked up some other clients. They were, they were my primary client for most of the time. We had other small companies that came in to do consultations. We did you know, some, some uh, work with some other ones, but they were the main company that we worked with. Uh, and they were a sizable company, and they were a great company to work with. So it, we made it really easy. Um, but I started in Japan, but I wanted, I knew that the company wasn't going to be Japan focused. It was Asia focused. And I wanted to have my corporate um, entity someplace that was, you know, as flexible as possible. So I started my company in Hong Kong and created a subsidiary in Japan. And then I eventually, uh, had staff in Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, and India. Mm -hmm. Uh, when, you know, we had about nine people at the, the largest 
mm-hmm. uh, for the company. Uh, yeah, so we ran that for about seven years, mm-hmm. uh, and then um, after that, I uh, was winding that down, and a friend of mine's uh, company was based in China, and he was trying to go global. And he's like, "Hey, Eric, would you come help me with this?" And I, we originally looked at it as, well, maybe it could be a, a consulting gig for mm-hmm. Pacific Portals. But what he really needed was he needed a team inside. And you know, myself and uh, some of my team, because uh, we were scaling down uh, one piece of the business, we said, well, why don't we just go in-house and we'll just you know, uh, manage uh, the company and help them grow. So I took on the position of COO. My, uh, my lead guy took on the position of uh, head of marketing. And uh, we came into the company and helped them expand out to a um, Hong Kong office and uh, Japan office and you know, did all of that for mm-hmm. them. And then what year was that? What year that was 2016. So I did that for about three years. Uh, years ago, yeah. And uh, end of 2016 till the end of 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after that, I uh, ended up with the company, I, I came back to the company that I'm at right now called 1010. And You'd been with 1010 before? So I founded 1010 with a couple of friends here in Japan in 2013. So it's your company. And <gasps> then I stepped away. How long were you with them when you founded it? Well, about two years. Okay. Uh, and I was doing both. I was running Pacific Portals and I was running 1010 at the same what time. What does 1010 do? 1010 is an um, IoT company. So we okay. do Internet of Things for unattended retail. So any place where you have a point of sale, but there's no salesperson there, mm-hmm. vending machines, coin uh, laundry, mm-hmm. uh, coin parking, uh, you know, anything where you've got a machine that you're working with and you put money in it and you get a service or you get uh, some type of product, mm-hmm. hardest thing there is how do you actually develop a relationship to compete against uh, another point of sale like a convenience store or a supermarket or uh, whatever? Mm-hmm. And how do you know who those customers are? You can't. How, how can you tell who they are? Well. 1010 is a simple app that is a mobile wallet with a loyalty card built into it. You go to an Asahi vending machine, there's 10,000 of them all over Japan right now, and you click on your 1010 app and you get stamps, you buy 15 drinks, you get a free drink. Sometimes they do, they'll do constant campaigns where you can have double stamps, they do sampling uh, campaigns where they say, hey, try this new coffee drink. Here's a free drink for you. 1010, 1010. But didn't someone else, that's just like these other cards, like the Nana, Nanako card. And so it's you like look at like a Nanako, Lawson, or you Nanako. look at, uh, you know, um, um, these guys are looking at it from the perspective of, um, we're just in my shop. I'm a Lawson card. Right. Okay. This is the only place you could use it. Right. Right. And if it's but not a Lawson. Yeah, so no, no, but, do, you, but Nanako can be used. But, so Nanako is just a payments card, like a Suica. Or like a, a, okay. a password. But it's 7-Eleven. I thought it was 7-Eleven. Okay. 7-Eleven must own it. They, they connect with each other. Okay. So 7-Eleven will have points. Mm-hmm. Nanako is a payment mark. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and what we've done is we just simply integrate everything into an app. It's multi-tenant, which means that uh, as more uh, brands come on the, the app, you don't need to have a 7-Eleven app and Family Mart app mm-hmm. and a you know Coke and a, and a Saki app. It's all one app. When you're inside of 7-Eleven, it's 7-Eleven app. When you're in front of an Asahi video you, you can actually use it there? Yeah. So right now, we work with Asahi. I said about 10,000 different mm-hmm. locations mm-hmm. In, in Japan. As we expand out for, and it's primarily, I said, unattended retail. So less a 7-Eleven. Right, right, more what Family machine. Mart's doing right now, where like Family Mart is trying to have a, a vending machine outside of the Family Mart. If they're so you out, get whatever you want. So you can just buy it directly there. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So how, how you how do you build loyalty? How do you build a connection with the customer? And we do a, a, a lot around the marketing side, so marketing campaigns for uh, our clients. Uh, and then we do uh, data analytics, of course. So there's a huge amount of data there to be able to get you a better understanding of who your customer is. Um, things like that. Oh. Yeah. So you do with also, do you also deal with images too? Like, for example, do you get the footage of people like when they come into the store or come to the venue? No, no, no. Because no, you know, the par- I know it's the parking things. They actually have cameras. Yes. So I was wondering, that can see more than just the license plate. Right. Um, well, just it's a question of how you want to use it. So right. n- normally, you're going to do that only when there's a value in being able to uh, you know, access and process that information. Okay. Um, for a parking lot, my guess is, and we haven't talked to any of the, the parking guys about their cameras yet, mm-hmm. my guess is that they're focused primarily just on that license plate. They sure are to find out if you pay or not because yeah. if they don't have the little thing that comes up yeah. and it's just that tight, yeah, you can take off. And their, you know, and their and their goal there really is, uh, you know, uh, cover their payment. Yeah, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's revenue protection. Your, that's all it is. Right. Yes. Um, if there was a reason that they could be able to say, "Hey, we know this is Lance Lee. You are a client. You are a member of ours with a YBQ of this and this and this mm-hmm. and the discount, and you don't have to show your card." Then that might be a nice way for them to do it, but the cost right, for right. them to be able to to implement this point, like that point, yeah. is probably more than a benefit for them. Right? So, what do you see? This you're in that field, so you're back with Tim Tim. Yeah, yeah. So I came back in 2000, uh, or sorry, 2020. 2020. Okay, so uh, you've last year, and I've been there now for you know, so it's almost two years. Now. What's your position there? Um, so I am. I just uh, was uh, appointed as the representative director. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you helped form it. What about yeah. the other? How many partners were you involved with? So there was three other people who were originally involved with it. Um, one of them, uh, unfortunately, passed away last year. Oh, sorry. Uh, and then the two others uh, are no longer really involved with the day-to-day operations of the company. As startups happen, people peel away. So it's just you. So it's just me. Um, you know, we've got great investor partners, and we've okay. got uh, a great team there. So I mean, I'm, it's not me just sitting there saying, you know, hey, 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 hey. No, it's definitely not that. Okay. We have a, you know, a, a good team of people. So you see this expanding and, and, and moving into the new areas, obviously. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're... So you have ideas out we're, there. You know, we've, we've focused, like I said, on the concept of developing loyalty in unattended retail. Mm-hmm. And all of the, the data and all of the marketing potential that's around that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a cashless piece to it, but you know, we're not trying to create a new cashless model. I mean, there's lots of different uh, solutions for doing mobile cashless already. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we look at being able to bring those in and have those be usable on the platform. Mm-hmm. But the thing that a PayPay or a Line Pay doesn't do for you is it doesn't give you, as a shop owner, really actionable information about who's my customer, what are they like, what are they not like, how do I reach them. How do I influence them? How do I give them incentives and create a deeper relationship with them so that they'll choose me over a competitor's product? Mm-hmm. And that's what we do. So how do you? How would people get in contact with Tintin? How do you get it? Um, so you can go to, of course, our website, which is my1010.com. Which is going to be put on this podcast on the right. bottom, okay, underneath the description. Thank you. Uh, and uh, you know, do you have one of the cards now? Um, I don't have a business card with no, me. No, no, one of the Tintin cards. Uh, so it's not a card; it's an app. Oh, you put it in your phone. Yeah, so it's just a little app. So you go on your phone, 
You can go in the app store and get it. And yeah, you can just go down and if you uh, if you look on the uh, the app store, you'll be able to just look for uh, 1010. Mm -hmm. And you get this nice little app here. That So this one here is set up uh, as our default for the Asaki brand. So I've currently bought 11 drinks. If I get to 15, I end up getting a uh, free coupon for a free drink. Show us the front. What's the, the front of the app at the beginning? So this is the, So maybe you want to... This is it. No, because we're going to... Most definitely, we're going to put that up there. That's in, I, I love yeah. tech, and I love... So the great thing, what we've done, what we did with Asaki recently is uh, you can go into our news feed mm -hmm. and be able to pull up a map. And the map is, uh, we'll know your location. And then you can be able to simply say, hey, um, I'd, like, uh, I'd like to know where, um, where's the closest vending machine that has see, tent in it. So you can get Google Maps immediately. Yeah. And so. just... So I've got a map here that tells me, you know, we're here. Right. There's two machines down there. There's one over here. There's two over <laughs> here. Uh, you know, you've got some, some over here. I mean, they're, they're all over the place. If you zoom out even farther, you can see we've got machines, you know, supported machines all over Tokyo. And that's wonderful. Yeah. But are you only in Tokyo right now? Um, well, if you look here, you can see we are in... Oh, you're going to do the whole map in Japan. So we are... I think I can do it this way here, yeah. So we are in... You look here, uh, I see. we are yes. in uh, Tokyo, Tokyo, in Nagoya area, Nagoya. and in the Kinki area. Kinki area, okay. Yeah, so Kansai, wow. uh, Nagoya, and uh, the other And eventually, in, so maybe two years or three years from now, it should be from Wakanai yeah. all the way down to Okinawa. Oh, yeah. Okay, I hear oh, you. Oh, yeah. I hear you. Yeah. That's your future plan. How much longer do you think you'll be with um, Tintin? You know, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a very... Uh, it's a very interesting business, uh, you know, but you, you need to make sure that, you know, the different phases that you are with, uh, you know, development of a company, you have the right people there. Mm -hmm. Right now, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm necessary to, to make sure that things move forward. Mm -hmm. uh, but if things change, of course, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the company succeeding mm -hmm. uh, as much as me succeeding. Right. Uh, and I do see the company's success as my success. So uh, I'll be there as long as I'm necessary. What would you like to leave us with in this beautiful podcast? You know, I mean, you got the thing I have to say is this has been unusual for me, this podcast, because I love Japan so much. And when you talked about it, it wasn't about you, but I wanted to hear it. <laughs> and I think as much as the people that will watch this podcast will, yeah. because I just knew by the way that you're speaking that you had a real depth as a foreigner of what Japan's about. And I wanted to hear that. Yeah, and I, I think, think people, you know, you asked me, you know, why did I come to Japan? Yeah. I came to Japan because this is a culture that I think. Most foreigners, when they come here, they learn something from it. You know, whether they appreciate it or whether it's something that they actually agree with or not, there's a huge amount of culture here in history that gives us a new perspective on the rest of the world. Um, you know, I looked at the world differently after I moved to Japan. After living in the U.S. and kind of the insular bubble, of, you know, the U.S. perspective on things, and then moving to Japan, it gave me a more mature, a better understanding of what you know, other viewpoints. When do you think that changed for you? How long were you here before that started to change? I think it was pretty immediate because really? when you get out of, you know, that, again, that messaging that is kind of an internal self-feeding mm -hmm. solution inside of, you know, U.S. news and, and uh, you know, just daily commentary. I came here receptive and looking to understand different culture mm -hmm. and try and be able to, uh, 
you know, bring that into my experience. So I think that I was very conducive and, and I wanted to learn. There are people who've been here for 20 years that still speak no Japanese that, uh, you know, are, uh, are long-term, you know, Japanese residents that will never really be in Japan. Well, they're taking comfort in being other. Yeah. And, and the Japanese treat other if you are an expat particularly yeah. very well. Yeah. And I was going to say, and there's not a lot of downside other than missing out on those cultural pieces. Um, you know, one of my uh, one of my good friends, she was in Kyoto. Uh, actually, been living in Japan for you know, 15 years or so. And she went. She was uh, walked by a shop and said, "Oh, there's this really cute thing inside. Um, I'd like to go buy it." And she went in, and. Uh, the woman there was this, you know, kind of, you know, older woman, kind of, you know, hunched over, uh, you know, Japanese woman. She saw her, saw this foreign woman walk in and immediately said, ah, able dama, able dama. So my friend spoke to her in perfect Japanese. She says, oh, that's okay. I do speak Japanese. It's okay. She says, no, no, go, go I'm sorry. Able dama. And she was, you know, she, she, she had this experience of, even though she spoke Japanese and she understood the culture, there were still were certain people that you know she wasn't able cannot to hear. Right? Cannot hear. But by and large, the moment you open your mouth and speak Japanese in Japan, it opens up an entirely new world to you. People will let you into their homes. They will let you into their environments. They will let you into their life experiences because they want to share. That's true. Right. And I think that many of the foreigners who are here. The foreigners, you know, there are people who come here probably for different reasons. People who come here to meet a business goal over a period of years and then are going to leave. Unless they, you know, really are a, someone who wants to immerse themselves in a culture, they most likely will just skim the surface. They'll go and see the sights and then they'll go back to their lives. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. um, I came here for a very different reason. I came here because... I was fascinated by that dichotomy of uh, a culture that was very monolithic. We are Japanese. Mm -hmm. you know, regardless of you can say, well, some came from Korea and some came from Southeast Asia. These are people who are homogeneously Japanese that can go back hundreds or even over a thousand years of documented history to say, this is my lineage. Mm -hmm. And yet, I come from a culture where in my high school, we probably had 30 different nationalities and we probably had 10 different languages being spoken by, you know, kids that I knew in class. And it was just kind of, you know, it was, it was the, the salad bowl, you know, of everything. And I love that difference. I, I, I've always loved these significant differences in seeing, you know, what that means in culture and, and how that changes and the way you look at the world. Well, you couldn't in with anything better than that. <laughs> I want to thank you, Aaron. I'd like to time to come here. I want to thank all of you for watching this podcast. Make sure that you press like. By all means, subscribe, subscribe, and subscribe one more time. Remember, never forget, it's all on loan. Continue to reach for the stars. And you're too blessed to be stressed. <laughs>